you perch on the edge of unknown and it hopefully takes you, you know, that caterpillar butterfly analogy, but it hopefully takes you to whatever the next place is. And then you dwell in that place for a while, not necessarily feeling that you're on, perched on the edge of the unknown or, you know, you feel for a while like you know what your jam is, you know, you're just in, you're in it. And then something starts to whisper deep down <laughs> and that whisper starts to churn and bubble up more and more and more. And then there you are, you find yourself on the edge of the unknown again, wondering what's next? <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Blissfully Aware, a podcast about rooting into purpose and exploring ways of creating a positive impact through strategy and design thinking. I'm your host, Iwana Friedman, and you just heard Chantal Diebel. Chantal is a master trainer and owner of Kina Spirit, which is a bi-coastal gyrotonic and Pilates studio. And she takes us through the arc of her dance and movement career. We'll see how one craft led naturally to another and how it's all just interconnected. You know, we have a tendency to look outward for best practices to move our business forward or a project forward. And along the way, while we might pick up really awesome information about what's out there, we might also lose sight of our particular circumstances our own resources, situation, and audience. So then the question becomes, how might we fit best practices into our context? And I think this is where the power of intuition comes in, following our nose and steering onward continually based on informed decisions that feel right in our world. No two people are alike, no two companies are alike, and no two situations are fully alike right? So really opening up our channels and listening, intuiting continually helps us stay flexible and tweak little by little based on our specific situation and what it calls for. You know, I can't think of a better person to talk about intuition with than Chantal. She's been a business owner for over 13 years and built teams in New York City and Portland, and she has an unbelievable rate of retention. You'll hear all about that too. Okay, let's make a show. I'm so happy you're here. I'm Yay. so happy to be here. I'm really honored. Let's dive in. Okay. You started out as a dancer. What brought you there and how did you transition from there? I came to dance late. When I started dancing, I felt like there were a lot of years lost. But pretty soon I realized that having a quote-unquote normal childhood was really a gift. <laughs> the kind of focus and discipline you have to have to be a dancer. I cherish that I had a carefree childhood and not that. And that my decision or the decision to become a dancer was truly mine. It was 100% mine, as a matter of fact. They put me in a dance class when I was five, and I came home from my very first ballet class saying, Mom, Dad, I want to be a dancer. And they swiftly, promptly <laughs> took me back out of the class. <laughs> My father was an engineer, and I just think he didn't think that that was the best career choice. So the question is, how did I come to it? Um, in the high school years, when you start to think about your future, <laughs> I was good academically. I had good grades, but I was also very active in extracurriculars, which included sports and theater. And I was part of our school drama club and also our community theater group. 
so it became pretty clear that I loved to be on stage. Don't know if I was any good, but I know I loved it. <laughs> and, you know, I got a couple of good reviews, even though I didn't have um, big parts. It was just something I was doing because I was drawn to it and it was fun. And I was also always really active. Ball of energy that my parents just kept throwing me into different activities. Gymnastics, horseback riding, swimming, basketball club, baseball, you know, just literally anything, everything, letting her get her yayas out. And so in high school, when it getting further and further towards deciding what to do, I was focusing more and more on my academics and I had less physical outlet. For the first time in my life, I felt like what it would be like to be unhappy. <laughs> it became so clear that without that physical outlet, I just wouldn't be happy. <laughs> And the way that I managed that at first was that was in the 80s. There was the uh, aerobics class trend. So I joined the local aerobics studio and, and I would go twice a day because I needed to, needed to, needed to move. And then I just did the math. I need to move. I love to be on stage. I should be a dancer. But I, I had no formal training. So I literally started my formal training to become a dancer in university. I actually was accepted into McGill University, and I ended up turning that down and flying across the country to go to Simon Fraser University in the British Columbia, Canada. This is all in Canada. And uh, auditioned for it, sight unseen, you know, and got in, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> My mother and father were very, not disappointed, they've never been disappointed in me, but they were excited when I was accepted to McGill. It's Ivy League, Canadian Ivy League school, you know. And for me to turn that down, they were very like, what are you doing? <laughs> They were nervous for you? Yeah, of course. Their kid, her future. And I was just really clear that the academic side of things would always be there for me. And that to pursue this physical dream, I needed to do it now. And I was going to give it everything, like two feet in. And if, if you're two feet in, you don't have a date. You don't say, if it doesn't work out in two years, then I will da-da-da-da. Because that means you're not two feet in. Right. So... What I knew, though, was that I had what it takes to be successful in that or realize that I needed to do something else at a certain point. But I never had to make that decision. I was dancing professionally within two years. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And that's how I found Pilates and Gyrotonic. I wasn't just taking dance classes. I was searching out anything and everything that would help me catch up because I was behind technique-wise and, you know, being able to use my body as a physical instrument. I was just so lucky. Uh, the university I went to had Pilates class as part of the curriculum. So it really was right from the beginning of my dance training. I also started Pilates, and it was only two or three years later that I was introduced to gyrotonic. What's gyrotonic for the people listening who have no clue? I tend to use Pilates as a point of departure because more people tend to know what Pilates is. There's a mat class or a group class version of it, and then there's an apparatus version of it. Gyrotonic is in the same wheelhouse as yoga Pilates gyrotonic. And like Pilates, it also has group class format that doesn't require big expensive equipment. And then also the part of it that does require the specialized equipment that was developed for it. You know, in the Pilates syllabus, the resistance is spring-based resistance. So the resistance is push-pull texture. And there are key principles that are applied, and there are specific results that you can expect if you follow the principles in Pilates. And that includes strengthened core, good alignment, integrated system, all that stuff. Gyrotonic is similar, but the main resistance is uh, weight and pulley. 
based resistance, which some people, if you've got a gym background, you'd be familiar with weight and pulley, but it's used differently in gyrotonic. The way that you stack the weights in gyrotonic, it's not just simply to increase the weight, you know, as you increase your training. What you're trying to do is create as close as possible an underwater environment. So mm, you're, yeah. That's cool. It's cool. So you're, if you just imagine being underwater and you move, if you move your arm, move a limb, you would experience at the same time assistance, the water assists holding the arm, the limb up, as well as resistance as you move the arm yes. through the water, right? So the weight and pulley system is basically doing that, providing resistance and assistance. And the design of the apparatus allows the body, whether the straps are on your hands or your feet, to move through their full and natural range of motion. So it's not limited to linear motion. It's three-dimensional. That's why it's called gyrotonic. Gyro, it's not a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) It's to really simplify it down. Gyro is standing for circular and tonic is standing for movement or tone. So it's circular movement, circular fluid movement. So the movement patterns are all based on circles and spirals, which of course trickle down to our source, our DNA. You look in nature, everything is circles and spirals. Gyrotonic is an incredible movement form that uses and applies principles derived from physics, physical truths in our world, the way the suspension bridge works, the way trees root into the ground and then, you know, yearn up to the sky and have an incredible stability yet a fluidity. I could go on and on. I mean, it sounds like poetry. It is. It's poetry in motion. And you were doing this while you were building out your dance career. So when I started Pilates and gyrotonic training for myself, I had no intention ever of being a teacher. My intention was, how do I become the best physical vehicle of expression that I can be? That was my goal as a physical artist. I ended up choreographing a little bit later on in my dance career, but I never really had a true yearning to do that. My true yearning was to hone my physicality, to be able to be expressed, to be able to use my body for expression. I was much better at working with choreographers that had clear visions. I was a very good person to have in a creative process, coming up with physical ideas based on the choreographer's vision. What drew you towards the gyrotonic path? So it became a part of my ongoing training. I was a practitioner for over a decade before I ever considered. And that's kind of how it used to be. You didn't see it in a magazine or even go to a few classes and then decide, hey, I'm going to teach this. It was like you did it for years and years and years and years before you ever had the audacity to think that you could teach it, you know. So that was me. I did it for over 10 years. And as an artist, I always subsidized my life with waitressing. And just at a certain point, I realized I never had the audacity to think I could teach Pilates and gyrotonic, but I did think that I would be great as a personal trainer. So years before I decided to become a Pilates and gyrotonic trainer, I got my credentials as a personal trainer. And I was also an aerobics instructor, but, you know, all different kinds of group fitness classes. So there was the kickboxing craze and there was the, I was teaching yoga then as well. So yeah, I was just active in the fitness industry already. So that part of the skill set was already honed. And so when I did finally decide, you know, I'm going to get my credentials to teach Pilates and gyrotonic. I did it kind of all at the same time within the same year. There was no bridge. It was like I didn't skip a beat. The day that I finished my basic training course for gyrotonic, within an hour or two, I had my first client. 
and that client set up a standing session with me and she was a client with me for years. It literally just took off from there. You know, I, I set myself a goal of how many sessions that I wanted to be teaching a week within a certain amount of time, say within a couple of months. Well, I hit that goal in two or three weeks. How did you do that? You know, my gut answer was I didn't do that. It just happened. Everything aligned. I had been developing that other skill set for years. So being able to hold space for somebody for an hour and really let them know that you're there for them. In any given session, you're always checking in, you know, how are they coming and presenting themselves to you? What do they need to work on that day? What's feeling good? What's not? What are their goals? You know, there's a whole protocol that you go through, whether it's your first time working with that client or your fifth year. And being able to really be present with them, hold space for what their needs are and have enough expertise with the syllabus that you can create a session that's going to meet their needs. Right. You're in response. Right. That just was coming really naturally. I just had the experience of if somebody booked themselves into my schedule and I worked with them, they became a regular client. And so my schedule built really quickly. It just had a momentum of its own that I took a breath and stepped back and went, whoa, okay. (laughs) This is real. That saying of meant to be, I was like, this is what that feels like. And so I just followed it, you know? I mean, there are forks along the road where there are decisions to make, but it was like it was being presented to me. When this all started, I was still dancing professionally and When we were in season, that's full time. So I had my teaching schedule around my rehearsal schedule. It was a lot, but whatever. You had the energy. Yeah. Like I said, when you come to dance late, you're catching up. It's all day, every day, a lot of the time. So I just had the energy and and it was all interesting and something I loved. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes I would wake up tired, but I'd still wake up in the morning and kind of bounce out of bed and just go. But there came a point where basically I was invited into the master trainer program for a gyrotonic. And in order to do that, I started to look at how I could fit that in with my schedule with the dance company. And it started to seem like it would be pushed further and further and further that it wasn't really going to fit. And so that was a fork in the road. I never made a decision to stop dancing. I came to New York to dance for the dance company at Elizabeth Streb. I wasn't part of the dance community here. I was. I went straight into the culture of that specific dance company. And then so when I made the decision, I realized that what was being presented to me in the gyrotonic realm was starting to outweigh priority-wise my dance work. You mean in terms of value, life benefits? Yeah. I started to feel like that was what I was supposed to be doing. The way that things were unfolding, it just that notion of purpose, that notion of being on the path that you're meant to be on. And I didn't want to stall it. Like I said, it had momentum and I I had a, not a fear, but I was like, I don't want to detract from this momentum that it has. And that was a really hard decision. You know, I moved to New York to dance for the best company in the world. That was how I felt when I came here. Elizabeth Streb is unique, incredible, crazy dance company. And my first day I was like, and I'm in it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like to me, it was just a dream come true. It was amazing. So to get to the point to decide to not be in that company anymore was not easy. But the other thing was calling me really strongly. So like I said, I never made the decision to stop dancing. I made the decision to stop dancing for that dance company. So it meant that I would have had to sort of start over again if I was going to immerse myself in the dance world in a different way. By then I was in my mid-30s. So I was like, that's not (laughs) where I wanted to put my energy. So I never made the decision to stop dancing, but that's what the end result ended up 
being, you know. It seems so natural. Yeah. What you just said is so true. There was no mourning for it. There was no looking back. It just, I was moving toward the next thing. And that next thing was so fulfilling. And it's still movement. Everything that I had done before, everything that had come before was filtering into what I was doing. Yeah, it just felt so right. And that momentum train never stopped. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I worked for studios at first and then I wanted to be my own boss. And so I left studios and worked for myself for a number of years. And that turned into opening a studio or having a studio. And I had a business partner. Did that change your relationship with movement, becoming a business owner? Yes. How? Time management. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big yeah. You know, when you're dancing, your physical output in a day is somewhere in the range of six hours. When I left the dance company, I made a commitment to myself that I was not going to lose my level of fitness. And for years and years, I stayed committed to that. I was very diligent about my own training and it came really naturally. I had been doing it for so many years. I was always a modern dancer at the end of the spectrum of modern dance that was extreme. Like how can you push your body? What are the limits? Pretty much every company I worked with, there was some element of exploration of limitations and pushing past limitations, right? So that was my specialty, quote Mm -hmm. unquote, (laughs) pushing the limits. Pilates and gyrotonic were key and essential because that's what was helping clear the slate so that my body was able to do that more extreme work. But I, outside of Pilates and gyrotonic, I was training like an athlete. You know, I was running, I was weightlifting. So when I left the company that I continued that and it was easy because it was so part of what I was doing. And then it's just slowly, slowly, little by little, so many things need to get done. So many hats need to be worn. And honestly, once I had a child, once I had my awesome daughter, I think there's a switch that flicks in maybe not everybody, but like women who, when they have their child, realize, oh my God, being a mom is the best thing ever. You know, like the song that I would sing to my baby was, you know, being your mom is my favorite thing to be, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like just that thing of. And you didn't even know it was there. Didn't even know it was there. Like I wasn't a person who thought I need to have a child in my lifetime. If I didn't meet the person that I wanted to marry and that we wanted to have children, I wouldn't have been that person who bought sperm, you know, to <laughs> to have a child, <laughs> you know. I didn't need to have a child to feel fulfilled or didn't think, right? But I met my amazing husband. We had that babe. And as soon as I was a mother, it was my favorite thing to be, you know. And looping that back to where it came from, though, it's a switch flicked in me where it was all about everybody else. It started out all about her, right? But then it seemed like in my life, everything was about everybody else. And, you know, that's fair, because up until that time in my life, everything I'd done had been in service of me being an artist. And to be an artist, a dance artist specifically, it's about taking care of yourself. You know, I did spend a lot of time in my life taking really good care of myself. (laughs) But when that changed, boy, did it change. Yeah, so back to your question, did it change as a studio owner, a business owner? Yeah, it did. How do you take that instinct that you have to make space for people to build teams and studios and teach teachers and do all the things now that you do to such a scale? I. Yes, I'm listening. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that that's such a great question, and I think it would be an interesting project for me to figure out how I could answer it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I can answer that right now because because it comes from such an intuitive place. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't think things like that can happen in a spreadsheet. Right. There's so much about intuition that drives what I do as well. And I think I have a hard time decoding what I intuitively do. And I think we're told all the time that that's how you run a business. You're supposed to write everything down and kind of like templatize it. But I'm wondering if there's an awareness within your body as you're talking with other teachers or guiding staff in a studio, you know, that enables you to hold that space and nurture. Well, I think inherently holding space is about listening. There just has to be a desire to want to create a space that people want to be in and what does that mean? Why do people want to be there? People want to be somewhere where they feel good. And fundamentally, with the studio, the first tier of attention is, you know, our space needs to be a welcoming, warm space that when clients come, they feel that thing that makes it special and different. And so first and foremost, that's like making sure that the trainers are qualified and experts in their fields and able to provide the service that we say that they can provide. So that means that we have a high standard when we bring people in. We bring people in who are green also. That's also cultivating intuition and experience about who has that thing that if they're in the right environment, they're going to just blossom. One of my favorite things is seeing somebody come into the fold green but with talent and just see them go through their cycles of growth and end up becoming a senior trainer, end up becoming a trainer of other trainers, end up being a person who's sought after for their expertise. I mean, it just makes my heart sore. We have a fair number in our Kinespirit family, and it really just feeds the heart, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's really emotional work. Yeah, and I'm a um, particularly emotional person. <laughs> <laughs> so... To be able to provide that for our clients, we need to have the trainers that are like what I just described. And so to do that, what makes trainers happy? Before ever having a studio, I was a trainer. <laughs> for many, many years with a very full schedule, I had a lot of experience with seeing multiple clients a day. So I feel like I know what trainers are going through mm -hmm. um, you can empathize I can empathize and at any given time when I'm making decisions I need to always be uh, juggling or managing three key elements which are what's best for the, the uh, client what's best for the trainer and what's best for the studio the equal ideal is equal that doesn't always happen and with my personality what tends to happen is that the studio ends up taking a hit a, a lot of the time because I'll want to make make it right for the trainer and for the client. When decision making is happening, it's about the well-being of those three aspects. And so, you know, when you're talking about creating space and listening to clients make their needs known, yeah. <laughs> we still want to stay ahead of that. We don't want to be always addressing an issue after the fact. A good business is trying to address issues preemptively. And so we try and cultivate that anticipating with the goal of Every single person who walks in the door from the moment they walk in to the moment they leave, they have an extraordinary experience. It's better for everybody. It builds 
everybody's business. For me, leadership isn't about being at the top. Leadership is what you just said. It's about creating space for people to be their best. And I lead from the heart and I am ridiculously <laughs> openly vulnerable with all of my staff and any client that I'm in contact with. And um, I don't know for sure, but my feeling is that those are key things to, well, for anybody. <laughs> when I present myself as heart-driven and vulnerable and that my goal is always for the betterment of everybody involved. Well, the track record has shown that people tend to stay around for a pretty good amount of time. And it's still New York, so there's still turnover. But we have trainers that stay for years and clients that stay for over 10 years. What that sparks with me is everybody in this chemistry is important. Absolutely. Irrespective of how visible they are in the process, whether they're, you know, greeting at the desk and welcoming people in or doing the actual training Everybody has a really important role to play, and I can only imagine how purposeful people must feel. That's really special. Yeah, admin staff and trainers, there's no separation. We're all a team. Our trainers rely on our admin team. There's a huge respect, and our admin team has a finger on the pulse. It's not a small operation, and it's not a position where you can sit and scroll Facebook. You know, there's a lot to manage and juggle in any given admin shift at our studio and our team is on it. We have literally the best manager <laughs> ever. <laughs> and uh, we actually have a studio manager and an operations manager. So we really do have a team. And you're bi-coastal. And bi-coastal, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. <laughs> well, Kinespirit was originally one studio inaugurated in 2006 and then second studio was acquired in 2008. They were both in the city. And um, the end of the lease came around for our 23rd Street location, our Gramercy studio. When we brought the studio to that part of the city, it wasn't the booming area that it is now. And during the 10 years that we were there, it turned into this high-tech IT boom area. And so we literally were priced out. And because of that whole area having become what it was, the idea of relocation wasn't viable either you know so we looked into all of our options but ended up closing that studio location meanwhile in the works a colleague who owned a pilates and jar tonic studio in portland oregon before she moved to portland she'd been in new york and was good friends with one of our trainers so she had attended kinespirit and this is the story as she tells it she said when she moved to portland she searched around to find her quote-unquote gyro home and there are plenty of studios, but none that felt like her home base. And so she realized that she just had to create one. Industrious as she was, she opened a studio and she said that she basically fashioned it on her experience at Kinespirit. That's amazing. Pretty cool, right? Yeah. And, and um, come 2015, though she loved being a studio owner, she loved her studio and loved her client base. She wasn't in a position anymore to own a studio, but she was clear that she didn't want to just sell it. She wanted to find the right person to sell it to. And um, she had a short list and I was on the short list and she called me. <laughs> Literally, cold call. Hi, will you buy my studio? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I just said, I'm, I'm really honored, but no. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, it, I didn't know yet that the closure of our 23rd Street studio was around the corner. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I, I'm pretty stretched already <laughs> and uh, I can't envision it. So we got off that call. 
that night, though, before bed, I told my husband, my amazing husband, and uh, that was that. But a few months later, he just said in passing, so whatever happened with that? And I said, well, I don't know, but I imagine if it had been sold, I would have heard of it through the community. And he just, he was sort of saying it on his way out the door anyway. He just sort of turned and the last thing he said was, you should think about it. And then he left. (laughs) (laughs) And think on it, you did. And my thinking on it was still, no, I mean, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Clearly, he started thinking on it. He thought it was a great idea. He kind of just hooked into the idea of being bicoastal. And I, you know, I said, yeah, it's a great thing for you to be able to say. My wife has (laughs) studios on two. (laughs) I'm the one that's going to have to do the work. And I said that. I was like, you realize that our lifestyle, not my lifestyle, our lifestyle will affect the family. I'll have to leave regularly. You know, I already leave and teach regularly, but this felt like a lot more like, you know, he just said, yeah, we can all handle it. You should do this. And um, there are plenty of steps along the way, but clearly (laughs) we ended up signing and acquiring that studio in 2016. So it it actually ended up coinciding with when we closed the other studio, closed one in New York, acquired one in Portland. Timing. (laughs) Right? Sometimes life just makes it like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's really cool. So you're moving between coasts. What is that like? It's very interesting. You know, we were mentioning before, you you would think sometimes with a business, it's creating a template and making it duplicatable. And on some level it is. We have the same mission and vision that I've already talked about. But our work is so human, person-to-person based. And the humans are so different <laughs> in New York and in Portland, like right? Like, yeah. the you know, every single time I'm always taken aback. It takes me a day or two to readjust to the different way that people interact in Portland than in New York. And it's subtle, but it's just definitely different. Therefore, running a business there is different. And mm-hmm. since I don't have my feet on the ground there all the time, I'm only there when I touched down, it was just really clear from the get-go, we need a, we need a manager, and we need a manager who's going to run with this. That took a minute, because also that moment of transition is a tricky moment on many levels. So the first mandate was really to not rock the boat too much, because everybody is a little bit on sea legs, like, what's going to happen here, clients and trainers alike? My job at first is to not rock the boat too much, keep things going as status quo, mm-hmm. until everybody's confident and comfortable So once we got past the initial tricky transition, then nailing down who's going to be point person, who's going to be the manager, the person who does live in that community, who does know how to reach people and how to manage people. It's a bit of a different approach with some things there than with our client base in New York. So, But we had virtually no turnover. One person left. All the trainers stayed. All the clients stayed. That's amazing. It It was a successful transition. It was great. I would chalk that back up to creating space for listening. It's like you said, it's not about you. It's about all the other people who are inhabiting the space and moving in and out of it. And that's why they stayed. It's really lovely that you're articulating it that way. I'm in another space of like wondering what's coming. Where are you steering next? So the trajectory has gone from caring for people on a one-to-one basis. I still see some clients one-to-one, but I transitioned my focus, my time, my expertise to more the teacher training aspect, which is where I'm interacting more often in a group setting. So it's teaching teachers to teach. 
but there just seems to be some kind of inner yearning or sense that in somehow, some way, shape, or form, I should be creating that space, being in contact, in relation, or in communication with more people. And so I don't know what that looks like yet. I'm in an open and curious, kind of vulnerable, and back to curious <laughs> place. They go hand in hand, right? Yeah. Vulnerability and curiosity. Yeah. You've trained for this your whole life. You said it earlier. You explored the edges when you danced. You honed your craft in exploring the unknown and getting cozy with it. Cozy with the uncomfortable. Oh, holy shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. It's okay not to know, right? It is. It has to be. You know, there is no other way, really. It's just it feels like there are cycles in my life anyway. Maybe you can concur or not. I feel like it's cyclical. Like you perch on the edge of unknown and it hopefully takes you, you know, that caterpillar butterfly analogy, but it hopefully takes you to whatever the next place is. And then you dwell in that place for a while, not necessarily feeling that you're on, perched on the edge of the unknown or, you know, you feel for a while like you know what your jam is, you know, you're just in, you're in it. And then something starts to whisper deep down <laughs> and that whisper starts to churn and bubble up more and more and more. And then there you are, you find yourself on the edge of the unknown again, wondering what's next? <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're feeling now? A little bit. I plan on having these studios until I retire. I'm thinking more of an as well as, not an instead of. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know exactly what it looks like yet. It's exciting. What's your relationship with awareness? What does it mean to you? Being able to open up your senses and listen. And so you're listening inwardly and outwardly. If you're with somebody, you're listening, but you're also opening the channels to be able to like really listen not just with your ears. I think that's awareness. Dive a little deeper. It's not something you have. It's something that you work on and that you do all the time. It's a verb. It's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not a noun, you know. It's And you have to want. We can so easily just move through our days and turn our senses off and turn those damn screens on. And, and then you're kind of like numb. <laughs> Awareness is like wanting to connect and feel, I think. And I don't know anything. I'm just... <laughs> you know what that just sparked with me? When your channels are open, it's an invitation to explore the unknown. Because again, I, I keep going back to what you said before. It's so simple and so beautiful that it's not about you. It's about your surroundings, your environment. So when your channels are open... You can take in information and it guides you where to go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then there's the whole other aspect of the unknown. If we want to branch off into the quantum potential, right? Yeah. <laughs> what are you thinking? There's infinite possibility at any given moment. And when we cultivate an openness and an awareness, those possibilities become possible. And in terms of quantum possibilities... <laughs> At any given time, there are different versions of what is currently happening. But that's sort of another wormhole or rabbit hole or whatever. <laughs> I think about that all the time, though. It's trying to listen to people from every possible angle. Yeah. And we're sucked into this illusion of that we live in, in linear time. 
but in the quantum approach, it's all the same time, it's all the same space, it's all the same. So opening up your awareness to that, well, it still remains to be seen what that can. <laughs> and as a dancer, I feel like, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe you're primed to hone your body as the experiential piece. This is your tool, this is your instrument to experience tangible life. Yeah, that whole notion of quantum, the time that I can say that I feel the closest to that has been when I'm performing, when there is no time and space, there's just there's just that. There's just being. Yeah, performance really takes you to that place. And, you know, I haven't been performing for a while, so now, I'm, now it's through meditation. What does your meditation practice look like? I meditate every morning and every night. It's intentional meditation. Parts of it are quietening the mind and letting it hopefully slip into another realm. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. But also parts of it are inviting that possibility, inviting the possibility of something mystical to happen, some information about other realms to happen. It's what I believe in. I've never been religious or gone to church or anything like that, but I've always been spiritual and always believed in a higher spirit, certainly the power of love. <laughs> so there's a lot of that involved in the meditation. I love what you said about the multiple possibilities. It takes you out of this like prescriptive way of looking at the world. Linear. The whole yes. the linear time is really... It's a mindfuck. It's a mindfuck and it's pretty much a lie generating from times gone by where this kind of knowledge was only reserved for the, the deities. Commoners had no access to this kind of knowledge. But now it's potentially what could change the world. You know, this place that we're in that seems so dire. I wish that we were in a place where somebody like Marianne Williamson could actually be taken seriously. Her work is all about what we talked about, you know, the power of love and a meditation movement, a real one, <laughs> could really have a profound shift in how we do things. You know, the message that she has to offer is powerful and true, I think. But in the political arena, nobody would ever take her seriously. I'm pragmatic enough to recognize that. But to me, that's the kind of work that'll change the world. Yeah, I see where you're going. It would be great if meditation and all these practices would be taught starting in kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And it's been proven that meditation allows young people to connect and resolve their issues. There are schools that don't have detention. They have meditation. Start young. Yeah. Where are you off to the rest of the day? Back to my project, getting the final touches to the course that I'm launching. That's so exciting. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Blissfully Aware is produced by The Daring, a creative consultancy and transformation partner to purposeful entrepreneurs and organizations. Our theme music is by Ben Tyree, and you can get in touch by emailing info at thedaring.co. I'd love your feedback, your topic ideas, your guest ideas. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review so that other people in our cohort might find it. And I'll see you back here in two weeks. Have a great day, everybody.